Hello and welcome to The Paper Crane, a podcast from Codes in the Clouds and a misspent youth productions. We are Codes in the Clouds. My name is Joe. My name is Kieran. I'm Stephen. And I'm Jack. And this week's guest is filmmaker, musician, former member of the Boxer Rebellion and overall huge figure in our career, Todd Howe. Hmm. Interesting Todd Howe dude. Facts. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> Australian-born Todd Howe is a musician, director, producer, filmmaker, and all-around lovely man. Yes. <laughs> now living in California, which is in the US of A, for those of you not very good at geography, <laughs> true. Todd is currently working on a new documentary, which will be out very shortly. Before moving to America, Todd moved to London from Australia in the early noughties, where he formed the band The Boxer Rebellion. With the, Rebo- with the Boxer Rebellion, he released an impressive four studio records, toured around the world numerous times, were the first musical act in history to enter the Billboard charts with a digital-only record, wow. appeared in a Hollywood film alongside Drew Barrymore and Justin Long, and got Good to song. perform on the legendary David Letterman show. They're like the answers to four future pub quiz questions. <laughs> <laughs> he also reco- recorded Codes in the Clouds' one-off single, Hanel Bridge, for the Erase Tape's fifth birthday compilation. His finest Absolute work. Absolute peak stuff. Thank you, Fact Robot. Um, I wasn't on the call uh, with Todd, which I was sad about, because he's a great guy and very interesting. Um but it also meant that I wasn't there to produce these uh, absolute amateurs. So I'm just going to add some context for the upcoming <laughs> chat. Uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure Boy, many yes. of you are aware uh, of, of. I'm sure many of you are aware of this. But for those who aren't, a sync is when your music is used in TV or film, a- aka where the money is. Uh, there's a film that they keep referencing, and even the robot just referenced it and still hasn't named that film. That film at no point has been named. Going it's the distance. Called, it's called Going the Distance. It's a 2010 romantic Drew Barrymore vehicle. Uh, also, at the start of the episode, Todd's talking about his documentary, which the robot just mentioned, uh, and he's going to cover some fairly brutal themes. Uh, he doesn't go into any graphic detail or anything, but if themes around death are something you're not that comfortable with, then just skip five minutes into the interview and you'll be fine. Yeah, that was like, I was kind of like a bit giddy and excited to see our old mate. Mm. You know, and um, so I was in the wrong, I was in the wrong mood to respond to someone talking about that subject. <laughs> yeah. As uh, Jack mentioned, you know, and as we discuss in this in this chat, Todd is one of the real formative, big big impacts on our career. Like, mm. I mean, we were discussing Hanau there, but yeah. he, he also was responsible for us recording our first proper version of our first single in mm. the pre Joe Power days, yeah, pre Jack Major days, pre Jack Major days, yeah, the real. The real dark ages of Codes in the Clouds, and yeah, and even our, you know, even a former a former band with Kieran and I, he helped us even <laughs> then. And that is true. Uh, what was crazy about that time is that, like, I think we say in in this interview, I, I say to him as well, like he's quite like a nurturing person of other people's talents. But like, yeah, when he was first helping us out and working with us, we had no business working with someone of yeah. Of what did he his think level. of us, really? He'd yeah. already done like crazy stuff at that point. Mm. You know, I was, I was thinking, this is the guy that this guy's songs on FIFA, and I was just playing that. Earlier. <laughs> he was just a, a super influential, uh, formative influence on us as a band. 
and yeah as we said a nice guy so enjoy Todd Howe directing and and producing a three-part documentary series true crime documentary series about what was the most expensive and most gruesome serial murder trial uh, murder case in california's history uh, which occurred in the mid 1980s and uh it's a lot more uh convoluted than that sounds sounds juicy (laughs) what yeah as you can see on my wall, it's. I was going to ask you about murder, that. Let's talk. So. Let's talk through. It's not very good for an audio medium, right? But we're looking at a background here of what looks to be a lot of newspaper clippings, like photos of. Yeah. So yeah, there's yeah. It's basically a collage of the case. It's and, it's the always sunny in Philadelphia meme, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So yeah, I mean the the case. Ah, God, where do I start? So, um, man disappears in November of 1984 um, after selling his car in the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, vanishes without a trace. Seven months later to the day his car turns up um, in South San Francisco at a lumber store, one man, an Asian man, flees the scene after shoplifting a a $75 vice. And the other man is detained at the scene. Uh, It's discovered that it's this man's car and uh, he's taken to the station. He collapses uh, after taking a cyanide pill and evidence, evidence in the car leads them to a remote property in the Sierra Nevada foothills. And within the short space of about 48 hours, they're uncovering um, human remains. Um, There is a tool shed which contained a secret uh, room which was being used to uh, house women who these two killers had um, videotaped uh, some of the women um, prior to killing them. And the serial killer... Um, the one here with the beard, Leonard Lake, had recorded a video manifesto and uh, he had written a diary spanning the years 1983 and 1984. And it's suspected that, you know, upwards of 25 people were killed at the hands wow. of these two guys. And so the the series tracks the story of the sister of uh, the missing man, Paul Costner, who, who sold his car and she it it took 14 years to bring the other um guy to justice and so it tracks her journey of bringing this guy to justice and after all was said and done she was the only one of 12 counts of murder not to receive a guilty verdict so Hmm. um yeah it's a it's a really uh captivating story but it's it's very gruesome and you know one of the things that was important for me was to make sure that you know, the perpetrators weren't glorified in any way. And that this is very much uh, the story of the the victims, family members, and uh, the guys in law enforcement who just worked their butts off to bring these guys to, 
to, no, this guy did justice. I, I, I remember I, I read an article about like you know this sort of series across all mediums and about how they are especially popular with women, like despite the sort of the the, the current movement that's that's happening, you know, like mm. and a lot of them can in sort of as you say glorify the wrong people mm. just in search of the drama of the thing. It's a, a strange yeah. kind of dichotomy between those two things. Yeah, I I honestly don't know why that is. I mean, I, I just fell into this story. Um, you know, you guys know my background, but uh, after I left Box Rebellion, I uh, moved to the States and fell into documentary filmmaking um, and ended up doing Rise, the story of Augustine's. That was my first doc. And then when that was coming to an end, you know, I, f I came across this story and no one had really told it in any kind of definitive way. And I kind of immersed myself in this case. And it just, you know, it's just happenstance more that, you know, I ended up telling a, a true <laughs> yeah. crime story. Um, yeah. But the, like, there's a common thread between Rise and this story and that there are stories of people that are, that go above and beyond to, you know, achieve what they need to achieve. And in this case, it was it was Sharon, uh, Paul's sister, who did everything she could to find her brother. And then um, when one of the, you know, when uh, Charles Zhang had fled to Canada, you know, she went to Canada. Uh, she was the, you know, to campaign for his extradition. She did, you know, she was the spokesperson for the victims' families and for victims' rights and, you know, stayed on the authorities 24-7 to make sure that this guy was brought to justice. So, like, yeah, there's definitely those common threads between the two stories of just incredible perseverance and, and resolve. I was going to ask, like, how, how you got into it. Like, because I always think, especially with true crime, it's like the research that has to go into it is, well, first it's extensive, as with any doc, but then there's also an element of, like, danger to it. And, you know, you're sort of, you're like a detective, you know? Like literally actual detectives have looked into it. In true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the part of the problem was the case was like mm. 35 years ago. So, you know, there are people who are alive. There are people who are dead in law enforcement. I mean, this case spanned 45 different jurisdictions and agencies. And yeah, it's there are elements of the story that were really difficult to tell. But, you know, I... Uh, it's for me it's 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 less true about true crime and more about you know the 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 human stories that kind of sit on top of those like the true crime element is really just a vehicle for telling human but stories. it's really like driven by yeah. your in personal interest in it absolutely yeah i mean it, the way this case unfolds is just abs you, you couldn't script the thing and mm. you know that it, that was kind of like my first stop um, I knew that, wow, this thing unfolds in such a crazy way. This is a great vehicle for telling human stories. And then I just started looking deeper and deeper. And that's when I came across, um, you know, these other stories that of the people that were involved that kind of sit on top of that. And like that, that um, the inspiration for, you know, that style of documentary filmmaking um, comes from, Films like Senna, um, yeah, uh, Last Days in Vietnam, 
was another really kind of pivotal documentary for me just at the right time because you've got this, you know, you've got the Vietnam War going on and the US pulling out of Vietnam and then you've got the people that were actually there in the last days that were faced with this kind of uh, decision that they had to make of whether they follow orders or whether they save lives. And that's kind of like to hear that kind of stuff firsthand from the people that were actually there, like that's really powerful um, storytelling. So, you know, and, and I, how do you deal with stuff like that personally, though? Uh, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm I'm not I wouldn't say I'm desensitized to it. But when you have the right um, approach, like the the murder and, and uh, the facts of this case, they're all kind of there to support the, the other stories. So you just you need to make sure that you get the balance right. But, you know. I mean, I've looked through hundreds and hundreds of crime scene photos and scanned them and, you know, I know every element of this case, but I don't know. You just take it all in your stride, to be honest. But, like, with, with Rise, you've got, like, a a personal connection to the people that it's about, right? So Yeah. Yeah, I did. But in this case, I do as well, right? Because, you know, when I first started out doing this... um. The first person that I spoke to was Sharon, uh, Paul's sister. Uh, and, you know, we've been talking for nearly, you know, I've known her now for nearly three and a half years and we developed a really close uh, friendship. And there are other, you know, law enforcement guys that were working on this case too that I've been speaking to for a long time and kind of, uh, you know, it's, uh, we've kind of trans transcended, you know, just, interview subject styles of relationship because and that's partly yeah. because you know i just know so much about the case with going back to like i mean how you make that switch from from music into into filmmaking yeah like what how did you how did you did you just decide oh i've got an interest in doing it and i know these guys and i know they've got a story this is like sort of referring back to yeah guys. well i mean i'd spent what 12 13 years doing the same thing in a band like and it yeah. gets really i mean you get to a logical point well at least i did you get to a logical point where you've got nothing left to do you know mm. really i mean i recorded four albums with the band we were still really close but i really wasn't enjoying it by the end of it um, because it was just doing the same old thing again and that dangling carrot still just you know, just, you know, one foot in front, out of your reach, you know, chasing it, chasing it. Yeah. And eventually you just get sick of it. But, you know, I moved to the US and then uh, after I'd left the band, I I had no desire to pick up a guitar or do anything else. Um, I was thinking about getting into production, you know, producing and whatnot. And I had a couple of meetings with a few managers here and, they were saying things like, well, you just need to get out there to the venues and meet the new acts and, you know, you know, start building your network. And I'm sitting here at 40 something years of age. I'm saying, fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I still had all of these creative urges and this is just another way to like, I get all of my creative, uh, fulfillment from storytelling and, you know, whether you're mixing a song or you're editing um, 
video or a documentary or telling a story, like you get all the same satisfaction um, uh, and it, as you do if you walked off a gig in front of a thousand people and you've just played a killer show. Like it's exactly the same thing. Like when you, when you walk out of a studio and you've got a mastered record in your hand, like that sense of achievement is exactly the same as like slogging your way through filming, interviewing, editing, assembling. Yeah. yeah all of that. It's just exactly the same um, creativity really. So I, I never, I never felt the need to really pick up a guitar again because I'm still getting those creative, you know, those creative urges satisfied. Have you picked up a guitar again? Uh, the last time I picked up a guitar and played it with any intention was 2014. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You're not even sitting at home just, you know, jamming some Bruce Springsteen on your own just to like... No, not really. I mean, we've got a couple of guitars here, but I just, you know, it just, I, I look at it and I think, well, I've just, I've played it. I've done that. Yeah. 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 Completed it. Yeah. I don't I don't know. It's I I honestly can't you know articulate it any more than that. Uh, could you um could you still remember all the boxer show all the boxer songs? Nice. There are songs that I wouldn't be able to play. And that's pro- I probably it's funny because we talk about this like when we when we chat and Adam and uh Nathan were over here before lockdown. Uh they were oh, doing right. a uh they had a side project and they were over here just finishing that record off. Um, and yeah, I picked up the guitar and tried to play a couple of tracks and I was, I have no idea. I would have to relearn everything. <laughs> um, we have had conversations about, you know, uh, well, the band's still together, but, you know, playing together again. I think we all miss yeah. being in the same room because we're all so close, but, mm. you know, if you if you think about the logistics of just getting back on a stage with those guys just for fun, you're talking about, well, I'd have to relearn all the songs. We'd have to do probably three to four weeks of rehearsals just to be yeah. any, you know, to have any semblance of, of tightness. Yeah. And then, well, what are you going to just, you know, walk onto a stage and that be your first gig. You have to do warm up shows. You have to get match fit. That's like it's oh man. It's just <laughs> it's it's a great idea, but it's never going to happen. I'm I'm thrilled for those guys after I left. You know everything that they achieved, and we're just all super close. Yeah, that's nice to hear as like an old boxer fan. Yeah, well, like when when we kind of a lot of things came to a head and those guys kind of called it at the end of the day because I wasn't really happy. Um, and you know, they just said to me, Oh, look, we think that we should part ways. And I'm like, thought about it for a second. They were shitting themselves. Cause you know, <laughs> oh, so it wasn't you. I was, issue I was, that. I was pretty fiery, but, um, no, in, in reality it wasn't, it wasn't, but it was, you know, they just said it first. I was, I'd been planning, you know, on kind of leaving for a while. Um, well, at least not planning it, but just it had been in my, you know, in my mind. For yeah, a while. you thought about it, yeah. But the, you know, the first thing I said to him was, well, so what do you want to do about it? I said, the last thing I 
want to do is make the last 12 years of what we've achieved together, you know, um, something negative because we're all super close. And once you cut through the animosity, like everything, that tension dissipates, you're left with guys that you've experienced something with that you've never experienced with anyone else. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think from, you know, as soon as that was kind of addressed, then yeah, you need the space. And then, you know, we all start talking again and we're just super close. So did your move to the US like coincide with, or how did it coincide with your leaving a boxer rebellion? Uh, It just did really. (laughs) I mean, it was literally, you know, we all kind of made this group decision and, you know, within six weeks I was in the U S right. And then, and then, yeah, I, I was, I had some time to think about, kind of what I wanted to do and it actually started off as I had an idea for a Boxer Rebellion documentary and then I just thought well no that's pretty stupid at this stage and then obviously Augustine's story hit me which is super compelling and then I I I did some more research and you know the the thing about Rise which was the main reason that I decided that you know, I thought I could make a documentary about it. I had no idea about it, uh, you know, whether I could or not. But these guys had a, had an amazing story. Um, they had amazing music, which, you know, can go one or two ways in a docu- music documentary. Um, and they had really interesting characters that could articulate themselves and tell a really good story. So it had a, it kind of ticked all the boxes. Um, and I didn't want to make just a standard music documentary because personally, I'm not a huge fan of music documentaries for the one reason that they tend to cater to their own fan base and be very insular. But you know what I would say is that I actually, even if I don't like a band, I could probably watch just them recording an album or something in a studio. Like I, f- I feel like I'm interested in that yeah. almost like generically regardless of who it is. I guess it's almost like, you know, what makes a good documentary is you don't need to necessarily like the subject. Yeah. If you get to the person behind yeah, it, that's what, like the yeah. absolute ultimate. Goal. It really yeah. is. Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't hate music documentaries. Don't get me wrong. But a, lot, a lot of them. You made a well, really successful one. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of them just, they do. They just, you know, they're too, they don't have a lot of story and, and, they just cater to the fan base, which is fine if that's what you want to do. But, you know, I knew that with Augustine's, well, it needs to be a story that can tra- that can transcend their audience and try and find a, a, a larger audience, or at least, at least appeal to a larger audience. So, so was it, it's really your debut as a director? Yeah. Because it's... It's it's strange that it's like you do the twelve year massive journey with a band like and and we hopefully we can go into a lot of the stuff that the band yeah, did because yeah. it because when you actually when you actually list it it's just like insane <laughs> like like Good like times. but a slog as well it is hard oh, work yeah. obviously but it was fun yeah but it's like it's a long term thing 
and then your sort of your debut into a new world which you've gone into because you didn't want to restart a slog within music is like a success straight away i mean obviously i know it would have taken a long time to make but yeah like it's not the trajectory that a band ever takes really Mm, yeah no i mean well for me it was just i just really wanted to remain creative i mean i to be brutally honest i was you know i was 40 something i gotta kind of remember now i was like 43 i'm 50 i mean i was left with well shit i've just i've just spent 12 years in a band one i'm institutionalized i have no no idea what else i can do and uh you know how am i going to solve that problem but i wanted to remain creative so this was just a logical you know it's kind of a logical decision at the end of the day that you know i I almost just fell into it say it hadn't have been as successful as it was do you think you'd still be doing the equivalent slog in the in the in this field of of filmmaking no and look it was a slog rise was a complete slog right it it took a hell of a lot longer than i ever thought it was you know, I think there wasn't an album that went by after our first record uh, with the Box Rebellion where we didn't think that, well, if you thought it was going to take this long, would you have done it? And the answer yeah. is always no. <laughs> but here you are time yeah. and time again. Like, I'm now sitting three and a half years into a documentary series. Yeah. Like, it's it just takes that long. I, th- I, th- I think what people what people don't see about documentary filmmaking is that like you literally, once you get to the end of it, you have to print out a log of every piece of audio, every piece of video. Then it, oh, right. as far as this series goes, like you have to clear everything. All the songs have to be cleared. All every single clip of video has to be either signed off or cleared. And that just takes a hell of a lot of time. And then you throw true crime in and you've got networks involved. You have to fact check everything and legal has to look over it. And it's just, it's a real process, but um you know still a lot of fun i think a lot of great art gets made by people just jumping into something and being completely over their heads you know just like just finding out how it works as they do it i like that though like stagnation i've never really enjoyed being stagnant and uh yeah i mean i took a left turn into music at like 28 and then uh, took a, you know, another left turn into documentary filmmaking in my 40s. Like, I could quite easily never make another documentary and go and do something else next week. Like, it, that, that, that stuff doesn't really, I'm not really phased by it. I'm more excited by um, the possibilities, you know, of where you can go next in life as opposed to, you know, being worried by, you know, oh, shit, I've got to make another one. Or or just feeling I have to stay in documentary filmmaking. So, but like you describe it as a left turn into music, at which at at a later age than most. Yeah, I had I had no intention of. I moved over to the UK and I had no intention of doing anything with music. The only, I mean, it all unfolded because I couldn't get a job for the first couple of months, and I went and bought a guitar and posted on a on a music forum for someone to play with and nathan was the only one who re- replied like that's 
literally how we got together. How Nathan and I, Nathan, <laughs> and that was 20 years ago. From that to where would, where would you say for you was the pinnacle, at least of your time with Boxer? Like, I don't know. Do you, do you have, do you have that? In- I think like those four records that I did with them, um, or that we did, I mean, I'm still a part of the Boxer Rebellion and I always will be. Uh, yeah. But those four, four records we did, like, that's a real achievement. You know, I'm proud of all of those records. Like, um, just just being able to make them is hugely gratifying. Well, it's like it's just that, like you know, you said before about like the carrot in front of in front of you that you're going for. I feel like we feel like that as well, even at our level. And then, whoever we talk to on doing this podcast, mm. it seems like that's a really common yeah. theme. And if I look at your career, there's just things that you've done that that I just yeah. said to to the guys before recording this, like I would, I'd kill to do that one thing. Yeah. And then you, in my mind, I imagine you doing that thing, like for example, going on Letterman. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, like, that was, I think if you're talking about pinnacle, that's kind of like, uh, around the mark. Like, yeah. But can you appreciate that in the time that you're doing it, or oh, are you still yeah. looking at this carrot? No, in the distance? no, no, no. Because what what happened was we got dropped from after our first record um, by sheer circumstance because the Pop Tones uh, Alan McGee merger with Mercury just fucking imploded the week the week before Exits, our first record, got released, and and right. then we just we were all like, what, we were hugely relieved because it was a nightmare. Just, you know, we could see the writing on the wall for nine months prior. And by the time they finally said, you know, you dropped, we were just like, yes. And then we got the, we got the rights to our music back. And so yeah, I, was saying, um, I was saying to the guys before the call, because I was at that London show hmm. the week of the, that you got dropped. And I remember Nathan announcing it to the crowd. Yeah. He was just, but he was so blase and didn't care about it. No, we were all, <laughs> we were all just like, yeah, it's, it was like getting let out of jail. It was, you know, <laughs> it was freedom for the first time. Like we had probably the, it was like at one point, the best feeling. You know, and then well, for the most Adam part, McGee supposed to be the worst big thing. deal. Yeah, supposed to be. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, look, I'm not his friend. You know, <laughs> I, what was he like? It's just a bad experience. Uh, you know, I I don't know. He's, I don't know. I think he's he's an okay dude. You know, I don't. I'm not one to really disparage anyone. You know, I just yeah. I was never really involved with Alan McGee that much um but when but when you guys signed to pop tones in the first were you was an i assume it was an exciting time oh no it was definitely exciting yeah it was just that you know towards the end of that record when we got dropped um it was just a huge relief because you know the the record company like mercury was making decisions like um oh you know we're going to give you a stylist and you know (laughs) Here's, here's the three options for your music video. Which one do you like the best? Oh, we like this one. Uh, we're not sure about that one. What about these two? Well, we like this one. Right. Uh, we're not sure about that. Let's do this one. I'm like, oh, okay. 
Uh, and then they go and spend $20,000 making a music video, which was fucking... Is that when you flew to Italy? To no, this was... For, this was they, they made a video for a song that wasn't even on the record. Like, co-wrote. It's like $20,000. And then, by then, you know, we just went with Giorgio for the next two videos, and it was probably about four grand for the whole lot. So we ended up getting dropped, and then... One, it was a huge relief. And once we, once, you know, we kind of, the dust settled, we were all, we all sat down and we thought, well, we just have unfinished business. Um, we've still got what we think is our best music ahead of us. And we really enjoyed being together and playing music. And so we, with that in mind, we just said, let's just, write songs and not pop our heads back up again until um, we're good and ready. And then we think we've got a record that could, you know, at least give us a career or something like that. And that's what we did. And then we just got really lucky at the end of it. Um, we had, uh, we got an email from a guy at Apple and he just happened to be a fan and he ended up putting it out. They ended up putting it out as uh, evacuate out as single of the week. And it all just went from there. And then. And that was, that was even bigger back then. Wasn't yeah. It? Like, that was right at the time where it was big and that they had huge influence over, you know, um, downloads like, and, and, and music. And like, there was a lot of focus on Apple at that point, at that, right at that point and we ended up having something like 550,000 downloads free downloads of evacuate and that led to you know tens of thousands of album sales of union when it came out and we were just like and we own the rights to both records so we set up our own record label and we were just and then we ended up you know going over and doing things like south by southwest and uh letterman and that's kind of like the whole period where it was like, man, I can't believe that worked. But it was a real slog because <laughs> it was like four years between records. Well, what was it like performing on Letterman? Obviously, every band would love to Weird. have performed. Or I mean, it was, it was a great experience. Um, but like they shove you on stage, you set up, and within five minutes, the theater's empty and you're backstage again going what the fuck just happened and then within 20 minutes you're in a cab you know to a bar and like there wasn't really like i really enjoyed it like it's just performing you know it's just playing i wasn't thinking oh man i'm on letterman but like yeah. it was just it was after like when we were all in the cab i'm just sitting there thinking and you know you're going down going downtown um and and just thinking to myself, man, I just did something that not a lot of other people I know have done uh, on a show that I grew up watching and, you know, shared that experience with my three best friends. Like, it doesn't really get any better than that. Like, I, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. And you're in control of your... And we own our own music and, you know, we ended up getting... a a lot of syncs off that record and you know we had a we had a great manager we really did like he he just 
really helped us get to where we needed to go. And from, you know, after that experience, it went from the four of us to like the five of us because we'd, we'd all the five of us had really achieved all of that. And so it was pretty cool. And then that really kind of gave us the freedom to do whatever the hell we wanted on our next record. And so we, you know, we wanted to do a live record and that's what we did with Ethan, which was an awesome experience. Probably wasn't, you know, certainly didn't sell as many records as Union, but, you know, there's some pretty cool tunes on there. How do you balance when you're the label and the artist, like in terms of, well, I suppose, I mean, in terms of finances, but also just like effort and time, like of and where you promote, like how much you put into promoting it? Or do you just go hell for leather, just all out everything you can? Yeah, well, social media was a bit different back then as well. You know? Yeah. But I mean, we were always just word of mouth, interacting with our fans as much as possible. And we were never on radio, never really flavor of the month in the industry at any point. Um, but, you know, sync, we had really good syncs on film and TV and um, a lot of fans, and that was, that was good for us. And you were a word out of uh, Drew Barrymore's mouth, right? So obviously she played a bit of a role in you guys. Yeah. <laughs> in the and- distance. And yeah, and we got that, we got that the week we went to, we went and did Letterman, I think. God, I might even have my years wow. wrong. <laughs> I honestly don't know. But it, was, it was literally our first trip to America that we played two shows. We played one at the Mercury Lounge in New York and then the Troubadour or vice versa. Oh, cool. And then the, the music supervisors of that film, um, you know, knew our manager, but he invited them down. And then, you know, next thing we were meeting with the director and they wrote us into the film and we were doing the film. So that was, that was really cool. Like, yeah, man, there's all these things that we did that they were just amazing experiences to have. That's like truly individual though. I think like, yeah, all the other stuff is great. And it's like the pinnacle of what you can do in music, but like, your store, your actual real life story is is crucial to the plot of that film, and like I can't think of yeah. any other artist that that's, <laughs> almost that's ever almost. Happened. I just you know I wasn't expecting them to actually write us into the film. I thought we were just playing in it, but yeah. Well, then they sent us this script. <laughs> so weird, man. It was so weird, but it was man. It was a lot of fun. Do you think like the first experience of um? being on pop tones and like they even if they sort of sort of handled it poorly or whatever like there were things you didn't agree with they were they believed in you enough to be investing in you and do you think that gave you the push to like the belief to then be independent and not seek another oh we just did yeah we just you know we had such a people were making other decisions that they felt were you know the way to go and we, they just completely conflicted what our kind of idea of where we wanted, you know, of what we were was, right? So we didn't ever want to, and it was such a, for the most part, such a stressful experience. I never had a, I remember having an anxiety attack uh, the, the day we rolled in to play a show at the 100 Club while we were on tour. Um, 
because it was just so, I mean, it was, and I'd never experienced that before, like ever. And uh, all of a sudden I'm having this anxiety attack and I'm like, what the hell's going on? But it was from just the stress of that whole experience, being on a label, like you're completely out of control. And like, even in music, for the most part, you have a manager and the manager is in control of every aspect of your career. And like, so, you know, you have to trust that person. But at that time we were like, my whole life was out of my hands. You know, it was being controlled by other people who were making shitty decisions. And, you know, I just, we, I think, you know, by the end of that, we all wanted to make sure that from this point forward, we were in control of everything we did. And that's the way it stayed. So you guys never tried to seek another label out post No, we, we decided to license. You know, we licensed everything else to, uh, to you know, labels around around. Is that the what world. the HMV deal was? I have no idea anymore. All I remember, all I remember, was you playing in a few HMVs and. Yeah, I think that was kind of a promotional. Well, thing. That's not the stuff that you right. remember, yeah, I suppose. But I, the... I just, <clears throat> I can't remember any more than that. <laughs> so, how did you like the the kind of touring? part of being in a band was that something you enjoyed or is it something you didn't uh there were elements i enjoyed and there were just i loved doing the gigs i didn't like anything else right. it was really <laughs> it was really stressful on my body yeah. um because we never we never had days off so our days off were travel days and you're sitting you're sitting down in a chair after you've played six gigs yeah. in a row and traveling, particularly in America, traveling like 12 hours, like I, I still feel it, you know, my body's, yeah. my body's fucked. Did you, so when you started your label for your band, did you ever think about like, did you want to expand it and make, be, be the label for loads of other artists and influence them? No, I mean, I, we, I think we entertained the thought for five minutes and then it was just, well, this is our imprint. And that's good enough. We never had any bigger ambitions than that. We kind of knew what the, you know, what the obstacles would be if we did that. And, you know, we, we were too busy focusing on ourselves to worry about anyone else. Cause but we, that, I mean, well, you say that, but I mean, <laughs> for, for our band, you were like a mega formative, like influence on us and help to us. So it's, it, it just surprises me that, because it seems like your instinct is to to help other people in the industry. Like some people are oh, very sure. competitive and like, you know, guards up, not, you know, elbows out. No. What's the, yeah, I, I never saw the point of it. You know, you guys are amazing. I mean, Codes never would have had our, recorded our first single without without you offering us yeah. Fortress for a yeah. day. And it was incredible. Oh, why not? What an experience why for not? a new band. You guys make great music. Like, I want to be a part of it. I want to hear it, you know. I want to help you realize realize it. It's just, you know, it's music for music's sake, really. Just the most the most kind of basic thing. It sounds like you've got a lot of kind of 
positive memories of of your experience like with the band do you have any regrets about that period with boxes uh the only regret i have is the fact that i didn't know my last gig was going to be my last i would have enjoyed oh, okay. it more. instead you've got your uh, foot on the on the amp and just kind and, of yeah <laughs> i've gone for it well i just wish <laughs> we'd done one more i you know what i don't even regret it it is what it is like i just pass all the negativity and all I'm left with is just awesome experiences that I've had with my mates and people that I've met. All all of my closest friends um, I've met, you know, while I was in the band. You know, you guys, um, all of my all of my mates that I'm really close to, I met just through an experience while I was in Box Rebellion, pretty much. Well, you wouldn't want, there's something about, no, if you knew your last gig was your last gig, it's then not like a normal gig, you know, so it's not the same experience. You want your last gig that you didn't know was your last gig and then to have the big ceremonious finale. I I just, you know what, it was just the fact that like all of a sudden we were never going to play again and didn't just go back into the, into the room and kind of had some fun and whatnot. But I think that's true of so many things other than music though, as well. Like, yeah, I reckon there was the, you know, the last time you went out to play with your mates on the street as a kid, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. At some point we all did that for the last time. We didn't know it. I don't know. Yeah. It was, man, I, I really, I have nothing to complain about to be quiet. That's great. That's really great to hear. I'm mellowed out. You know, I've been through some stuff and come out the other side and, you know, better dude for it. And thanks for Todd for his time. Uh, we had not much chance to chat to him in the past few years, so it was really great to catch up with him. Yeah, it's been ages. Yeah, I mean, well, if only because of possibly you copying his accent every time you meet the man. <laughs> but we, we, yeah, we've had to keep <laughs> you away from most most conversations. I know, but remember, it's it's me, like you know, trying to endear myself to someone. It's it's a good trait in in someone. It's not a- weird. Apparently, that's mirroring is a form of uh, flattery. It's like an, yeah. it's an empathetic thing to do. Exactly. So it's not bad. However. Uh, if you know, like me, you've just been to Scotland. That's dangerous. <laughs> that's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> to explain what we're talking about, when Jack first met him, he said hello to us as a group, and, and you know, Jack responds, "Well, good day, mate." You know, <laughs> no, I didn't. How say you good going? Day. I didn't say a... good day, mate. Jack, you are an absolute rotter no, for that thing. I did not say good day, mate. <laughs> well, defend okay, yourself. Doing... What did you? What? What do you think you did, and why? I probably just said, hey, hey, mate, like that. I didn't say good day, oh, yeah. mate. I didn't, it wasn't a stereotype. It was just something like I just suddenly felt like I had to do it back to him to make Bonza. him feel or something. Just How are you going? Yeah. <laughs> How you doing, mate? My accents are so good anyway. You probably thought I was Australian to start with, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't be the one criticising you on this because because uh, my Australian accent is, is famously poor. Hmm. But I'm giving it a go. Famously. Yeah, we'll yeah. dedicate a separate episode to that. Certainly more famous for that bad accent than we are at uh, music. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> but it's uh, it's great to hear the work he's doing in America, and um, 
Yeah, he's, he's yeah, he's gone from being a brilliant musician to a to a brilliant filmmaker. Yeah. And um, yeah, so when I, I I don't even know that it's maybe another terminology thing that we needed to clear up that when we talk about rise, we're referring to yes. rise, the story of the Augustines, and and yeah, rightfully critically acclaimed. Yes. And um, and yeah, I think the the trailer, the link to the trailer is that going to go in the no? yes, pretty I'll, please I'll... joke. I'll smack Please. that in the description yeah. along with a link to their uh, to Boxer's Letterman performance, which for us, I mean, we should also say that was like that felt like such a huge moment, like someone so close to us that we're on David Letterman. Yeah. That was bonkers. So, uh, I'm so sorry, listeners, but we're uh, taking a week off next week, but we will Ooh. be back in October. So I hear. Yes, we will be. Uh, and we have some exciting guests, uh, and hopefully we'll get them all recorded and done and out with you guys very soon. Yes, hopefully the aim is to get these go- these done before Christmas, if not, hopefully in the new year. But yeah, so Jack, how can people get in touch with us if they want to? Well, uh, Joseph Power, you can get in touch with us via email using this email address, info at codesintheclouds.net, or you can also use social media. E.g. Instagram, Twitter, which you can get us at at Codes Clouds. <laughs> you, you, you the, your intonation there made people think that there was a third social media. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are. Look, they've got an extra week now. They have an extra week, and if you, listener, if you don't send me the name of your teenage band, oh boy. Oh, I'm going to lose I'm going to be livid because you've got another week to do it now. Former band, yeah. call it something crazy. The original name for the Boxer Rebellion was Slipperman. That's, see, that's, that's see, what we're asking. That's all word. we want. <laughs> Todd's, Todd's done it. That's all we want. Why don't you do it? Send a band name in, will you? Slipperman. <laughs> Christ almighty. Anyway. <laughs> I'll leave you, leave you on that sour note. Um... Uh, I don't really know how to sign off this week. I mean, I've I've been watching a lot of films lately, so I've, I, I just chuck some multiple choice at you, and you can just decide what you want. Um, uh, I'm crane as hell, and I'm not going to paper anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one. one. Um, because we're off next week, we could like say, frankly, my dear, I don't give a crane. <laughs> there's no paper. Or, in there. No paper. In there's it. no. But you don't need paper. I mean, the crane's just. You could have said paper, paper, my, my dear. dear. Yeah. Paper my de- yeah okay paper my dear I don't give a crane because we're not yeah. uh, or uh, Top Gun was big this year wasn't it yeah. the sequel Maverick. so uh, I feel the paper the paper for cranes that's <laughs> good you know, the thing is yeah, you, this yeah, I is mean listen play... you take take what you want and run with it this is going to play havoc with my spreadsheet. Uh...